Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is God's word. And. Well, if you have your Bibles, please keep them open to John 14 as we pray together this morning. God, we ask that as we open this important text from the night of Jesus' arrest, we pray, Lord, that you would press the truth of these words into our hearts, that we might receive them and receive the hope that is in them. Lord, we ask that you would build in us trust in you, that can stand against the things that this life will bring against us that we may not understand or do not like. We pray that we would trust you, that we would turn to you in hope, that we would have joy in knowing that you turn all things for good and your glory. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, a couple of months after he was born, my wife and I took our son, James, to the doctor, which was routine for him. He 
had not minded that at any point so far, but this appointment was different because it was the first time that he had to get shots. He sat there on the table in the doctor's office looking perfectly content and at peace, but all of that changed instantly when the nurse poked him with the needle. And the look on his face, I'll never forget, was not just one of pain, it was one of betrayal. As if he was saying, how could you let this happen to me? And then he screamed like we had never heard him scream before, and Jess scooped him up in her arms to comfort him. Of course, he did not know or understand what was happening or why mom and dad were subjecting him to such treatment. From his perspective, as he looked at us, uh, all he could see was that he was suddenly being allowed to be poked by a stranger. He couldn't see it any other way than a failure on our part to stop this bad thing from happening to him. It's the way that I think we sometimes feel when we endure things in life that we don't like. We turn toward God not only with a feeling of pain, but also one of silent accusation that this is a failure on his part and that he ought to have protected us. In the moment, all we know is the sting of pain. But Scripture equips us for these moments, proclaiming to us that God is not careless or distant, and even that he is at work in and through the most difficult experiences in our lives for our good and his glory. What we want in moments like that is someone to tell us that it's going to be okay. And what we need is someone with the power and the compassion to make it true. As we open the book of John again this morning, we return to the upper room discourse. It is the night of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and the night before his crucifixion. And one thing is clear and necessary for us to remember before we look at what Jesus has to say next to the disciples in the passage before us today. And that is that the 11 remaining disciples are utterly unprepared for what lies ahead. In their minds, the best possible course is for Jesus to continue on the path that they think he is already on. He's developed a following and proven himself a capable and wise teacher. He has demonstrated his divine power repeatedly to such a degree that the disciples assume that a day is, is coming soon when he will topple the oppressive governmental system that has burdened them for generations, establishing in its place a new kingdom with himself as king and each of them in positions of honor. They love Jesus, and they also love the vision that they have of how this is all shaping up. So when Jesus tells them that while they are in Jerusalem, he would be arrested and executed, they will hear nothing of it. They simply don't have the categories to comprehend how it could be that their supremely powerful and capable leader would be subjected to such injustice and humiliation. So when everything that Jesus has said actually happens, it will cause them deep heartache and fear, and they will wonder where it had all gone wrong and why God had failed to stop it from happening. They have no grasp at this point of the fact that Jesus wills it to be this way or that he will lay down his life and allow his enemies to afflict him and take it. They cannot see or imagine a better path forward than the one that they have in mind. So, 
Knowing this, Jesus speaks to them out of love and patience. On the night before his death, Jesus' aim is to comfort his disciples. That's amazing to me. Recently, a friend of ours found out that she needed emergency surgery. So Jess, my wife, contacted her as she sat at the hospital waiting for the surgeon to arrive, asking how she was doing with all this, this craziness and how we could be praying for her. And her reply was that a friend of hers, who we didn't know, had been going through a difficult and discouraging season, and she asked if we could pray for that friend. Even as she was about to go into emergency surgery, her first instinct was concern for others who were going through their own difficulty. That is the heart of Christ that we see in the upper room discourse. As he counts the minutes remaining before his immeasurable suffering, when the ocean of God's wrath against sin and rebellion is poured out on him, his actions reveal his concern for his friends and the discouragement and fear that they are about to endure. If we ever think that our circumstances or our heartache is too insignificant to be of concern to God, we would be wrong. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus explained to his disciples that even a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from the knowledge and the will of God. So nothing from a stubbed toe to a traffic jam that makes us late for work is beneath the notice and the sovereign mercy of our God. And alternatively, if we ever think that our trials are too big for God to use for our good and his glory, we are wrong every time. There is no destructive force or calamity that, that God does not ordain to serve his good purposes. From the movements of kingdoms and nations to natural disasters, our God is big enough and wise enough to rule them all for his glory. Christ is there with us in the storm, reminding us that it's going to be okay and that he is able to make it so. But he goes even further than that. He promises that he will make such good things from the trials that we endure that it will be better than if we had been spared them altogether. When we are in the midst of the storm, we need to remember this, that God is good enough and strong enough to keep this promise. So as the disciples face the horrors of the next 24 hours, Jesus speaks to their very present need, making a staggering promise that his kingdom will not be defeated. In fact, it will continue to expand and that he will do it through them. And Then he goes on to explain in the bulk of our passage this morning how it is that he intends to keep that promise. He's telling them, and he's telling us, that it's going to be okay. We saw in the first half of chapter 14, uh, two weeks ago, how Jesus assured these disciples of their eternal security. He tells them that he is going ahead of them to the presence of his Father to prepare a place for them. But beginning here in verse 12, where we pick up this morning, he zooms in on the present needs of the disciples, what they'll need to get them through that night and the rest of their earthly lives. And that even though he is going away, he assures them that he will never leave his people without help. He will never leave his people alone, and he will never leave his people without a guide. 
Though there are certainly many, many more things to explore in this passage, we're going to focus on these this morning, since they are the backbone of Jesus' words of comfort to his disciples and to us as we encounter the challenges that will come in this life as we follow him and bring the gospel to bear on the world around us. So Jesus begins in verse 12, "'Truly, truly, I say to you,' he says, which is a phrase that he likes to use when he's about to say something surprising." or even bizarre to our ears, but which he is deadly serious about. He wants them to pay close attention to this word because it will be as surprising as it is hard to believe. In fact, his word to the 11 disciples here is so surprising that people have been stunned by it ever since. He tells them, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. It's such a stunning promise that it demands a closer inspection. First, we see, and this is critical for us, that this promise is not restricted to the 11 disciples who are with him in the, in the room. Whoever believes, or literally the one believing in me, is a deliberately broad word choice. Jesus goes out of his way here to make clear that what he's about to say is this true of anyone who believes even today in Massachusetts, 2,000 years later, or wherever you are as you're joining us this morning on the live stream, as it was for the disciples who were sitting at a table with Jesus 2,000 years ago? We ought to see here that Jesus is speaking directly to us, to each of us who believe. This is the exception to the rule, I should point out. Most often, we read Scripture and observe that it was written by specific people, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, who lived at specific points in history, and who wrote to specific audiences. So it is, at best, a confusing way to look at the Bible, as if God were speaking directly to us as we read it. Instead, we recognize that Scripture was written for us rather than directly to us. And if we want to rightly understand it, we need to understand the context in which it was written. Here, though, John 14, 12, Jesus speaks to his disciples and to everyone who believes directly. And he says to us, whoever believes will do the works that I do. Already we should be interested. Jesus is saying we will, not we might or we may, but we will do the works that he does. Jesus knows something about what lies ahead and that it is certain, not just a hopeful expectation. He is not saying, gosh, I really hope this works out, but I know what it is coming and it is good. He is speaking with divine authority and he's telling all of us, all of his people, I have good plans for you. Trust that promise even when it looks like all hope is lost. On the eve of his death, on the scattering of the disciples as they fear for their own lives and wonder about the plans and the providence of God that has brought them to this point, Jesus wants this word to ring in their ears. God has willed it. I have promised it. Nothing can stand in my way. And if, as if that were not a high enough crescendo to this promise that he's making to them, he goes on to say, you will do the works that I do and greater works than these. Greater than Jesus' works. 
If it weren't Jesus himself saying this, we would reject the idea outright as preposterous. How is it possible for any of our works, anyone's works, to be greater than his? Some have wondered whether Jesus means greater in the sense that there will be a great multitude acting in his name. So the sum total of their works will be greater in number than his. But the word that Jesus uses here, greater, rules this out. It's an adjective describing quality in addition to scope. It's the same word used to describe the great power with which the disciples would later share the gospel in Acts 4. So Jesus is not merely saying that their works will be greater in number than his own, but that they will also be greater in immensity or effectiveness than his own. Works is a critical word here, obviously. It's a common Greek word used almost 170 times in the New Testament, and it's simply a reference to the things that people do. My works today involve drinking too much coffee, editing through the sermon one frantic last time, praying that the Lord will use it for his glory, and joining you together in worship. It's not a complicated word, works. It doesn't have a complicated meaning. But when Jesus uses it of himself, he almost always means it in a specific way. Of the 27 occurrences of the word works in John's gospel, seven of them refer to the deeds of people simply going about their lives. But 15, the majority, refer to Jesus' specific mission to reveal the glory of God and bring his kingdom to bear on the world. Jesus' works are the miracles and teaching and acts of compassion that draw people to faith and salvation. To quote just a couple of examples of what I mean, he announces in chapter 5, verse 36, that the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And then in chapter 10, he says, if I were not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And here in chapter 14, where he says, believe in me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. By promising that Jesus' people will do greater works than his own, Jesus is making the stunning promise that their lives and their deeds will draw to himself more people than his own life and ministry did. Your life and mine will be a greater evangelistic tool in God's hand than the years than than the years that God himself in the person of his son spent traveling around and proclaiming his kingdom from town to town in their physical presence. And if that sounds too crazy to be possibly true, consider that when he ascended into heaven, Jesus' entire following was around 120 people. When Jesus left this earth, 120 people were Christians. After three years of doing signs and wonders and teaching in, t- in various towns and revealing the hope of the scriptures, there were just over 100 Christians. But then, one week later, one of, the, one of the disciples, Peter, preaches the first Christian sermon to an assembly in Jerusalem, and Acts 2.41 records that those who received his word were baptized and they were added to their number that day about 3,000 souls. Clearly, Jesus means what he says here, that those who believe will do greater works 
that will draw more people to faith and salvation than he did in his lifetime. What a comfort and encouragement that is to us. As we consider the calling that each of us has been given, the command of Christ to go and share the good news of the gospel with our friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers, as we fear with some trepidation how that will go, whether or not we'll be rejected or whether or not uh, we'll be asked questions we don't have the answers to or whether or not uh, people will uh, you know, not want to uh, be our friends anymore or what the consequences of our, of our evangelism might be, we can at least rest in this promise knowing that God intends to use our effort, that he will cause seeds of faith to grow. Many of you were with us this weekend as we took part in the Life on Mission conference. The purpose of the conference this year, for those of you who were not there, was to equip us, to equip each of us to share Christ with the people in our lives. It was a good and encouraging time together, and we learned about good ways to connect with people for the purpose of helping the world see the glory and the grace of Christ. But if, at the end of the day, all we have is strategy and good intentions, we will fail. However, as our conference speaker Paul mentioned, and as we see here in this passage, we have much more than strategy and good intentions. And all this, Jesus says at the end of verse 12, will be possible because he is departing, because he is going to the Father, where he will be the advocate of his people. He says, whatever you ask in my name and I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It's important, I think, that we understand that this is not a blank check. Jesus is not Santa Claus. Praying in Christ's name is praying in accordance with Christ's name or for the things that Christ desires or for Christ's sake. And what Christ desires for the world to see is the glory of his Father, which he makes clear here. So Jesus' staggering promise in verses 12 through 14 could be summarized this way. Though he is going to depart from this world, it will be better that he does. Because in the presence of his Father, he will see to it that his people are equipped for the God-glorifying works that they have been called to carry out. And the rest of this passage is Jesus' explanation about how he will keep that promise. First, he says, he will not leave us without help. Hearing that Jesus is going to leave them, it makes sense that the disciples begin to panic. Their whole plan for the future rests on Jesus sticking around to continue calling the shots. They're like teammates who've had great success together, but who see their leader leave town, maybe down to like Florida or someplace. What hope do they have of success now? None. They're done, finished. They can't possibly see a way to success. But Jesus says to them in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. Though he is leaving them, he will not leave them without help. This is the first reference to an important word in John's gospel that only occurs four times in this book and only one other place in the New Testament. It is the Greek word, if you'll indulge me for just a second, parakletos, which I don't mention to try and sound smart. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation, so anybody who is actually smart is shaking their head at me right now. I don't mention that to sound smart. I mention it because it's a word with no real English equivalent. Depending on the translation of the Bible that you are looking at this morning, uh, this verse might, we might use a number of different words here. Some use comforter, counselor, 
companion, advocate, friend, or a number of other words, because this Greek word captures all of those in one unique word that we don't have in English. There's a lot wrapped up in this one word, and part of the reason that it's important to recognize that is to grasp how great a comfort it is to the disciples to know that this is the one who is coming to them. He will be their help, who makes success in God's calling a guarantee. He will be their comforter when, they're, when they grieve, their counselor when they seek wisdom, their companion when they are ostracized, their advocate before a holy judge, and their friend when they are overrun and downcast. The Spirit of God will be with them. One of the English words that's used here most often is advocate, someone who stands to speak on behalf of someone else or for their interests. But unlike a legal advocate who may, who may carry this responsibility out of a, an obligation or for a paycheck, a parakletos is someone who rises up out of love and compassion for another to represent their interests and speak on their behalf out of deep affection. For them. The Holy Spirit is not merely a formal representative, but a friend, and the power and majesty of God who loves us as Christ loves us. That is why Jesus says here in this verse that he will send another helper, and why he says you already know him. If they know Jesus, they know the Spirit. The implication of these two verses They're just giant. If we think, as people sometimes do, that we would be better off if we have lived back then, if we had followed Jesus then and seen for ourselves all of his works, Jesus says we are wrong. Because the spirit that he has sent to us, the spirit that he has sent is to us as he was with them, but even closer. The Spirit, Jesus says, is with you and will be in you. It's amazing to me to think that in the years that followed Jesus' ascension into heaven, the disciples who were literally with him 24-7 for three years felt closer to him through the indwelling Spirit than they did while they sat at this table with him in John 14. In the years that followed this scene, they felt closer to him through the Spirit than they did when they were literally sharing a meal with him. Jesus' promise is for something even better than to be at that table with him. At this moment, the disciples, though, they can't imagine that. But the promise of Christ is that as they carry on in the years to come, it will be with a divine counselor at work within them. Secondly, Jesus says that he will not leave his people alone. Jesus' word in verse 18 translates literally, I will not leave you fatherless. He goes on to explain that though he will not be with them in the same way that he was before, he will still be with them. These are words that the disciples will need to cling to. Within hours, they will see their leader and friend, the one that they look to as their protector and liberator, arrested and put on trial. They will see him made to carry a cross through the streets on the way to the hill where he will be hung upon it, and they will feel helpless and alone. Because they don't yet know how God will use even this terrible thing for their good and his glory. And they will wonder 
whether or not he has failed or whether evil has won. Jesus knows that this will be their experience, and so he tells them that he will never leave them. Even though he is departing from them physically, he will remain with them, working in them and through them in the world. And he takes it even further. And one of the disciples, Judas, not Iscariot, asks, asks for clarification in verse 22. Not only will he never leave his people fatherless, he will bring them into the household of God at home in God's presence. It's a promise that echoes a line from the opening chapter of this book, chapter 1, verse 12, where we read that to all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word for home here in verse 23 is actually the same one that Jesus used back in the opening of chapter 14 when he told them, in my father's house or home are many rooms. Jesus is taking the promise of eternity and the hope of heaven and bringing it to bear on the present. The presence of God, the eternal joy of God's people that we will have there is not some far-off, distant, hoped-for reality. It is the promise of God carried out by His Son for His people right now. It is fulfilled now and forever afterward. Lastly, Jesus promises that He will not leave us without a guide. After the resurrection and in the weeks that He spent teaching the disciples, Jesus will leave them uh, with a tremendous responsibility to make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. It is a tremendous responsibility, but one that he never intended them to carry on their own. In fact, after he tells them that that will be their mission, he tells them to wait rather than to jump into action. Specifically, he told them to wait for the promise of the Father, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He specifically ordered them not to go out and start preaching the gospel, but to wait, because they have not received the Holy Spirit yet. Scripture testifies to many ways that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He convicts of sin and causes us to recognize our need for a Savior He causes the seeds of faith to grow and bear fruit in our lives. He brings believers to maturity, transforming them into the godly men and women that they are called to be. And he seals the salvation of God's people. And here in John 14, Jesus promises that the Spirit will be his people's teacher, and that in him they will hear the voice of Christ. They will never be on their own. Neither will any of God's people. So for the second time in this chapter, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He is going away, but he will not be out of reach. And in ways that they don't understand yet, he will be crowned king, but not in the way that they imagined. He will be lifted up to a throne, but first he will be lifted up on a cross. And his kingdom will grow. It will not be defeated. It will grow. But through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, working in his people to preach the good news of the gospel. These are the words of comfort from Jesus to his friends as they prepare for the darkest day that the world has ever seen. And they are his words of comfort to us, assuring us that now, as then, it's all going to be okay. 
and that he is able to make it true. And as they rise together from the table at the end of this chapter, Jesus leaves them with this word in their ears in verses 30 and 31. The ruler of this world is coming. He, by which he means the devil himself, has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. I spent um, a long time thinking about these verses this week, trying, trying to get my head around them. These are the words that Jesus leaves his disciples with here. Jesus knows what this night holds for him, and he intends to let Satan do his terrible work. He will let himself be arrested. He will let himself be condemned. He will let himself be abused. And he will let himself be crucified, though he had sufficient power, to say the least, and authority to stop it all. Out of unimaginable love for you and me, God has willed this to take place, and Christ has come to carry it out. In order to satisfy his holiness, Christ will pay the penalty for our sin, to receive the wrath of his Father on behalf of all who believe. It is a love beyond comprehension. But here, Christ does not point to his love for us as his driving motivation. He points to his love for his Father. His obedience to the command of his Father. His willingness to let all these things happen to him is so that the world will know about his love for his Father. And as he sends his people out on mission, a mission of preaching the gospel in a world that has rejected the lordship of God, he does so by leaving them this example. Christ's obedience to the command of the Father will be his testimony to the world about the loveliness of his Father. He will endure what lies ahead in order to show the world that his Father is worth it all. Four times in this short scene, Jesus has talked about obedience and keeping his word. He has repeatedly drawn straight lines between obedience and love. Like in verse 15 when he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then here in verse 31, he says that it is because he loves his father that he will keep the father's commandments so that the world will see it. So that the world will know that the father is lovely even though his obedience will cost him his life. So what's the lesson for us here? That our obedience to Christ is our testimony to the world that he is worth it all. That even though it may cost us everything we have in this life, it will have been worth it. In his own life and death, he proves that he is able to keep the promise, that he is able to make such good things from the trials that we endure that it will be better than if we had been spared them altogether. That will be the legacy left behind by each of these disciples. John, who is writing this book after most, if not all, of the other disciples have been martyred, knows that none of them would have changed a thing. They obeyed Christ, carrying the gospel to the nations and the power of the Holy Spirit, and for the glory of God, they endured the hardships that that brought into their lives because they knew that Christ was supremely lovely. Even even when the providence of God was bitter for them to endure, 
They testified to the worthiness of Christ by clinging to him through it all, even as they lost their lives. Now, Christ's promise to us is the same as it was to them. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. These are his words of comfort to us today and every day as we make him known and await the day that we see him face to face. He is at work by his Spirit to bring about his good ends for our good and his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, as we receive the truth of John 14 this morning and the words of Christ to us here, we ask that they would sink deeply into our hearts. Remind us today of your love, your sacrificial and redeeming love, and your presence with us by your Spirit. Challenge us and convict us to remember that you have ordained that our lives will be powerful tools in your hand for good and glory that the gospel might be received by those whom you call to faith and cause us to be encouraged by the promise that we will never be left alone or without help to do all that you call us to do, even when it is costly and difficult. Help us to remember, Lord, that you are worth it all. We praise you today, the God of our salvation, and we ask in the name of the Son that you would work mighty things in and through our lives, that the world would see your glory. Amen.